Good afternoon, everyone. Um, yeah, I'm Mike, if we have, well, I'm Mike, whether we've met or not, but now you know my name if we haven't met, I guess. Uh, I'm uh, looking forward to sharing with you. Dave kicked off this series last week called Breakthrough, and, um, you know, when, when I, here's one thing I know about every person in this room. I may not know you very well. You know this about me. You may not know me very well. Here, here's something we all know about each other. Every single one of us is looking for breakthrough. We may be looking for multiple breakthroughs in our life, right? We, it could be, you know, maybe you're hoping for breakthrough with your kids. Maybe you're hoping for a financial breakthrough. It could be a career breakthrough, health breakthrough. Uh, you know, we are all looking for probably multiple breakthroughs. And as, as, we, as we heard last week, the ultimate way for us to find the breakthrough that we're looking for is to adapt a kingdom, heavenly, godly mentality of receiving from God and trusting in him and not bailing when the breakthrough that we're hoping for isn't happening or isn't happening soon enough or regular enough. That's what happens too often. We get to that point, we're really wanting something to happen. It's not happening. What do we do? Well, God's not really got this figured out, so I do. I got a plan. And as we learned, and as we learn over and over, that's not the way to do it. And so what, what, what's interesting is starting today and for the next two weeks is we're going to be looking at some Bible characters, not just stories of people, but actual people whose stories are recorded in the Bible. And we're going to be looking at the breakthroughs that happened as a result of the way they lived their lives before God. By the way, Kyle, catch me after church. I got your message. Sorry. Um, anyway... We're going to be looking this week specifically at Joseph, but not just him. We're going to be looking at a four-generation history of his family and how eventually he brought breakthrough after all those generations. Now, families are kind of interesting, too, because it's one of the biggest places where our life becomes formed, right? We, we, we become who we are in large because of the families we grow up in, brothers, sisters, but parents, DNA, all that kind of stuff. And uh, we, we actually understand this. There are, you know, we have aphorisms or you know, axioms that we use that you guys all know that demonstrate we, we, we understand this. And I'll just do a little game. Remember this one two weeks ago? You guys remember that? Yeah, I'm never doing that one again. But I have something, I have something to keep it interactive. Here's you finish these phrases, right? The first one is this: the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, right? The next one, he's a chip off the old block, like father, like. And then the last one, she's the spin image of her mom. And all these things, actually, I don't know if you know this. I, I was like, where does that come from? So I looked it up. And it's from some old 1600s uh, play where, where, where the, the, the kid was so much like his dad that he said, it looks like he spit him right out of his own mouth. It's useless trivia for you guys. Anyway, we understand that families transmit and translate a lot of who we become right? And it happens like, like genetic traits are passed on. Your eye color is genetic, your hair color, your hairline. I didn't know this, but did you know that red, green colorblindness is genetically passed on? Well, you're smarter than me, so good for you. <laughs> I didn't know that. Anyway, but then there's like learned family traits, you know, fears, language, behaviors in the family. And then there's 
There's like family tendencies. You've heard this, oh, they're a family of educators or that, that, that family, that's a family of athletes or boy, they're really a conflict avoidant family. All these things are things you learn by being in your family. I just shared this in, in all staff uh, here just a few weeks ago. A little story about me and my dad. Um, <laughs> my dad, he used to wear suits to work, right? So he'd get dressed up every morning. He would take us to school before he went to work. And uh, this is before they had the adult version, the adult coffee sippy cups like they have now. You just had to have a regular cup. And so um, every morning he would pour his coffee in his suit. He'd get in the car and he'd drive down. And it, I, I, it, my recollection is every day, but probably not. He would get to the bottom of the driveway where it would just dip down like this. He would spill his coffee and he'd go, cracking. <laughs> I don't know what that means. I don't know why he said it, but here's what I've learned. I don't like drinking coffee out of adult sippy cups either, and I use my own coffee, and many days, at least once a week probably, I show up at K2 with coffee spilled on me because I won't put it in an adult sippy cup. So, (laughs) passed down a behavior. And many of you may even know, uh, a lot of you probably know David York. He just released a book not that long ago. Uh, It was called The Gift of Lift, yeah? And um, in the book, he shares a story about being on vacation with his family, and he's on his computer, his family's in another room, and they were big Disney people, so he's at Disney, and uh, he's looking at the computer, and he had filled out a thing for one of those um, ancestry.com type things, and so he sends it in, and the results come back, and he reads the results, and the next thing out of his mouth, his wife's Mindy, he's, hey, Mindy, can you come here for a minute? And he finds out in that moment that the dad that he grew up with was not his biological father. Now, the interesting part of the story, and there's a whole lot more to it than that, so I'm going fast, but what's interesting is that as he researched his father, his biological father, and as he looked at the father he grew up with, and as he learned about the siblings that he had biologically, he realized that he shared many common traits and interests with both. And that's because we pass on who we are because of DNA and because of experience and influence. But here's what's even, well, for better or worse, we do this and we do it whether we mean to or not. We're passing on traits and DNA stuff whether we try to or not. And it's plain to see that we pass down, you know, physical DNA, but it's also important for us to recognize that we pass down spiritual DNA to our kids and to those around us. And the good news is that the Bible has a lot to say about this. And uh, what I want to do with, with today is I want to look at this family of Joseph's family, and I want to trace back the lineage four generations, and I want to talk a little bit about how he became the key catalyst in providing breakthrough for his family after handing down multiple generations of dysfunction. And it kind of, the setup, before we even go into this, I want to read something to you from Exodus chapter 20. And if you know Exodus chapter 20, that's the giving of the Ten Commandments. So this is one of the Ten Commandments that was given. And I'll just start reading this because this is really informative to this story specifically even. And he says, you must not make for yourself an idol of any kind. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
who does not tolerate your affection for any other God, small g God, which means idol. Now, we can read something like this. Let me pause, and I'm going to keep reading in a second. But this is kind of interesting and very important. We read a verse like this, don't make idols for yourself. And we're all like, I'm good, I don't. I haven't melted down all my gold, because I have so much of it, and made these things that I kneel before and worship. But here's what you need to understand in their time, and then I want to update it to today. They did. And as a matter of fact, under Moses' leadership, the Israelites had made uh, like figures of, of cherubim, brazen serpents. They had made oxen and, and many things. He's specifically talking about a practice of the pagan nations around them. He's warning them not to follow the other nations. Now, do you remember what happened right after he got the Ten Commandments and headed down the mountain? Oh, yeah, they made a golden calf. And that's waiting for him. This is a very practical thing. And while we don't necessarily melt our gold and make something that we kneel before, we also have idols everywhere. Everywhere. Cars, money, success, status, relationships. See, we have all these same things. And it can even be, I work at a, for you, the church can be an idol. Because an idol is anything that dresses up like God and masks around in place of him. And I start to worship that. And that's why he's telling them, don't make anything that you bow down to. <laughs> bow down to me and me alone. Let me continue, though, because he goes on and it gets a little dicey here. He says this, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. Wait, what? I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Now, I just want to clarify something here. You can read that, and even as you saw in the video, you can take from this that God is a vengeful, spiteful God. It's not, but here's what you need to understand. It's not him saying, not only if you don't, if you don't behave appropriately, not only will I zap you, but I'm going to zap your kid and their kids and their kids. That's not what he's saying, actually. What he's actually saying to them is that this is the way that dysfunction gets handed down from generation to generation. Think about your own life. Do you find yourself engaged in behaviors that you saw your father or your mother doing that you swore you'd never do? We all do. And this is what happens because we pass on DNA both intentionally and unintentionally. Dysfunction of the parents gets passed on to the kids and grandkids, and dysfunction exists... Because we have idols. As soon as we take the worship as it was intended to be and we transmit it to some other idol that's masquerading as God, dysfunction enters and our worship with God is broken. And the blessing that's promised in this passage for a thousand generations is also broken. Because blessing happens within our families when we're obedient to God's original plan of worship, which is to have no other God's small g 
only him, big G God. And what happens is we want the blessings of God or the kingdom of God. We want the breakthrough of God. We just don't want to follow the king's rules to get there. And it doesn't work like that. If you want the blessing and the breakthrough of God, you have to follow the rules that he provides to help us get to that place. And so I want to take a look at the story. And I believe this is a perfect, very, very literal example of of what we've just read. But before I do, I want you to just understand one other thing that's really, really essential. Parents, your kids know what you worship, whether you tell them or not. Hey, kids, your parents know what you worship, whether you tell them or not. And we're all worshiping stuff all day. And whether we broadcast it or not, we all know. I I came across this story after the dedication of his baby brother, a boy was in a car driving home and he just, he just sobbed the whole way home. He's crying and his dad's trying to figure out what's going on. So he keeps asking, what's wrong, what's wrong? And the boy refuses to answer. Eventually he says, okay, here's what's going on. He said, dad, that, that pastor said he wanted us to be brought up in a Christian home, but I want to stay with you. Whoops, <laughs> that was not my family. As far as I know, at least. But See, people know what we're worshiping, whether we broadcast it or not, so you might as well just be out with it. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk about this four-generation story that leads to Moses and the breakthrough that he provided for his family. And I think we can summarize the story like this. No, no, no. That's the story. No, no, no. We know God, no idols, and we can know blessing or we can know breakthrough. No, no, no. So let's start. And here's what we're going to do, by the way. We're going to rip through. Don't worry. I can, there's a clock back here, so I know. We're just going to get started. We're going to look at four generations. Starting in Genesis chapter 12, we're going to cover 38 chapters in the next 15 minutes or less. Generation one in chapter 12, we pick up with Abraham and Sarah, and this is a generation that is united in their dysfunction. Verse two of chapter 12 says, I will make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. All of the people on the earth will be blessed through you. Wow, that's a big statement. Here's some little backstory that's probably important for us to understand, that Even past this, God, a couple chapters later, promises Abraham that he's going to have a child through childbirth, as his wife is, he and and Sarah, and that his offspring is going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the beach. One tiny, tiny little problem. He's 75 years old. His wife is 65. They have no children. As a matter of fact, it's 25 more years before this happens. And in the meantime, Sarah can't wait any longer. When she's 86, 11 years later, she says, I've got a plan. Oh, this is what we said. Don't do. Don't do this. What's the plan? You can sleep with Hagar, my maidservant, have a child with her. Well, I'm sure God was so pleased that they were helping him out with the plan. (laughs) 
And let's just blow over the part that she's going to endorse this behavior, okay? So anyway, she says, you do this, and guess what? It works. And we're told that as soon as she's pregnant, Sarah resents and hates both the child and Hagar to the point where once Sarah has, at 100 years old, once she has a baby of her own, she so hates Hagar and Ishmael that she sends them off. They send them out to live in the wilderness, kicked out of the family. What's the problem? Favoritism creeps in. The idol of I'm going to play favorites. Now, we read in James, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from your desires to battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill, you covet, but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And this is exactly what happens. They're promised by God something, they believe it's going to happen, or do they? And then they try and make it happen on their own. And when they try and come up with their own plan, an idol creeps in because there's favoritism in the family. And this is a big deal because what we see is that Abraham and Sarah pass this dysfunction of favoritism on to their son, Isaac. And he marries Rebekah. Now, this is kind of interesting because Rebekah, well, Abraham and Sarah had a united favorite, Isaac and Rebekah actually don't favor the same son because they have twins. And we're told that as they're born, Esau was first and Jacob is holding on to the heel. And this is a picture of what the rest of their life was going to be as Jacob tried to take things away and was successful in taking away many of the things promised to the firstborn. Look at this, uh, Genesis 25, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. This is a big problem because, again, they're divided, and this creeps into the family relationships and the way they're treated. Jacob and Esau are at odds. Eventually, Jacob gets the opportunity and steals the birthright, which is something we don't really understand. But the birthright in that time, he steals this from his older brother. The birthright gave you a double portion of the inheritance, kind of a big deal, and it gave you the right to be in charge of the family once dad passes. And then Rebecca, in her favoritism, she begins to connive a way for Jacob to steal, or um, for, for Jacob to steal the blessing. I'm sorry, Isaac to steal the blessing from his brother, which is also a big deal in this culture. So they're conniving together, dividing the family in half, and favoritism is running the way the family lives. It gets so bad that Esau, the older brother, plans to kill his own brother. What happens when you don't have what you want? You steal and you kill. Told that in James. Now, they pass this on to the next generation of Jacob and Rachel. So we have Abraham and Sarah. We have Isaac and Rebekah. And now we have generation three, Jacob and Rachel. Now, this is pretty interesting because this doesn't work like just 
the last two, what happens is Jacob had a favorite wife. Okay, let's just, just accept that con- comment for a second and move past it. He had a favorite wife, and it was Rachel. But Rachel has difficulty getting pregnant. And so because she can't get pregnant, she comes up with this super unique plan that had never been thought of before. And this plan is to have her husband sleep with her maidservant to have a child. And it works. As a matter of fact, she has 10 children. And then much later, she has two children, Joseph and Benjamin. Now, this produces a favorite son. We read in Genesis 37, look at this. It says, Jacob loved Joseph more than any other, any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day... Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe, the technicolor dream coat. I think they call that these days. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. They couldn't even talk to him, it says, without being mad. Nothing kind So what do they do? Well, what are we told in James? You plan to kill. So they devise a plan to kill their brother. They throw him in the pit. They take the technicolor dream coat. They rip it up. They dip it in blood. They send it back to dad and say, he's eaten by animals. Oh, what a bummer. That very symbol of his favoritism is what they use to demonstrate that he's dead. He's gone. Now you got us. But as fortune would have it, a traveling band of Midianite traders travel by while he's still in the pit, and they're like, why kill him? We could make money. So they sell him to these Midianite traders who take him to Egypt. Favoritism handed down into three generations. Joseph is 17 at the time he's sent to Egypt as a slave, and the fourth generation begins, and this is where it changes. He is brought to Potiphar and becomes, Potiphar is the captain of the guards, and he becomes the personal attendant to Potiphar, and he's given, put in charge of everything that Potiphar owns, and he's doing a fantastic job. So yeah, tough circumstance, he's traded, his family doesn't really like him that much, and he's gone, he's, he's a slave, but at least he's, he's you know, up at the top of the, top of the heap. And then... One slight snag is that Potiphar's wife accuses him falsely of rape. And again, these darn (laughs) jackets that he had to wear, she grabs the jacket as he runs out of the room. She says, here's the proof. See, he raped me. He goes to jail, being falsely accused. And as he's in jail, he ascends the ranks and he becomes like the big boss man of the jail. I don't know really how that stuff works, but... That's what happened for him, and he's in jail, and these two guys have dreams, and he, he interprets the dreams, and these guys get released, and he says, just do me one favor. When, 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 you get rele- when, you, when you get released, will you go tell people about me? Remind them about me. I'm in here. I'm falsely accused. Well, since he did the right thing, they forgot. He's in jail for two more years. Two more years. Eventually, he gets released, and I'm leaving so much out of the story, and he becomes the second in command over all of Egypt. This guy who's not even Egyptian is second in command over all of Egypt. 
famine tortures the land, burns all of the produce and everything. There's nothing left. So Isaac, Joseph's dad, I'm sorry, Jacob, who's Joseph's dad, sends the 10 to go get provisions. And they find themselves right in front of the brother that they'd sold into slavery. Dun, dun, dun. But they don't know it. They don't recognize him. And through a whole series of events, he orchestrates this plan to get his younger brother, Benjamin, and his dad back to Egypt and be reunited. He wants to see them. And he throws this dinner extravaganza for his brothers, and he does it all incognito. They still don't know who he is. And then the dam breaks, and he can't take it anymore. And he's overwhelmed with the emotion of his experience. He's overwhelmed by looking at his family that he hasn't seen at this time, probably for another decade and a half. And he sends everyone out of the room and he sobs. So loudly, we're told, that everyone in Pharaoh's house could hear it. And then he comes back in the room and reveals his identity. Uh-oh. So you hear Joseph's story, and you're like, yeah, it's about time he gets some. You know, they, those, they sold him as a slave. Of course. It, if Tom Clancy was writing this story, he would torture them all, Right? That's how you do it. You get revenge. You get even with the people who were ahead of you, who did mean things, who did bad things to you. You see, but that's not what he does. See, because he was committed to no God, no idols, and knowing blessing and knowing breakthrough. And the point is this, that we don't need someone to blame. We need breakthrough in our life. It will never make you feel better to get revenge. And by the way, why would you want to get even with someone you don't like? Why do you want to behave worse than the person whose behavior you're condemning in the first place? How does that help anyone? It doesn't. Look at this verse in chapter 45. He reveals who he is. He says this, I am Joseph. He said to his brothers, is my father still alive? But his brothers were once again speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. And they came closer and he said to them, I am Joseph, your brother whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. And now you're in real big trouble. No, he doesn't say that last part. He says, but don't be upset. Look at the perspective that he has. Don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me into this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. His perspective is that my role before God in worshiping him and having no idols, vengeance could be an idol, favoritism, all of the bad things that have happened, all his history with this family and all of the struggles he's had, don't 
mean he gets to change the way God calls us to worship him, and he doesn't. He views it as an opportunity that God set up for him once again to live into the plan that God had for him and bless the nation, and he does. He gets the whole family there into Egypt and saves them. Man, you guys can come up as we're just getting ready to close. And, you know, we read that verse, the sins of the parents are put upon their children to the third and the fourth generation, three and four generations right here where you see the dysfunction passed down from generation to generation until someone, one person said, I will not allow this dysfunction to rule my life and I won't allow it anymore. I want the thousand generations of blessing. We started the day kind of talking about how we're all looking for breakthroughs. Now, I don't know what it is you're looking for. Not sure. I know it's something, though. And I want you to just think about this. Think about the times you've actually tried a different version than God's plan. And, and hmm, for some reason, that breakthrough just still isn't there. Think about the times you've turned your back on God, or you've decided you're not going to do what he says. I mean, if we had the choice, if it was just simply to say, do you want four generations of dysfunction or do you want blessing for the next thousand generations? It's such an obvious question. We don't even need to answer it out loud. And the way to answer the question isn't by a word, but by a behavior. Know God, know idols, and know the blessing, and know the breakthrough. So I want you to think, if there's something in your life where you're looking for a breakthrough, I want you to confess that to God and we're going to pray here. We're going to offer that up to him. I want you to identify what you need to do in order to worship him and him alone. Pray with me if you will. Lord, you, uh, just in the, even in spite of the stuff that we have going on in our life, our own brokenness, and in, in spite of our own failures, in spite of us trying to play God, trying to create our own solutions and figure out how we can get what we want without following you, have your kingdom with no, without you being king, you're still offering the opportunity for us to come back to you and for, get forgiveness. And, and while we're waiting for you to act, we pray that you would make us people who are holy. Help us understand you are for us. You're with us. It is your desire to bless us. Give us the breakthrough we're hoping for. But if that ne- even if we never see that here on this earth, make us a people who commit to following you in your way. As you say in Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless you, keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord, turn his face towards you and give you peace. May that be our prayer as we seek after you. We ask this in your name. Amen.